Hello and welcome to the Zone Digital Distractions podcast with me, producer and host Beth Lewis. For there is always something down there in the dark waiting to come out. We were on a break! <laughs> this time, as you may have already guessed, we're going all warm and fuzzy discussing nostalgia. Along the way, we'll be talking to Dr. Jacob Jewell, who is a lecturer of psychology at Southampton University. He's going to be explaining to us what nostalgia actually is. We've also assembled a motley crew of Zone's finest to discuss why we think it's such a prevalent trend in pop culture at the moment, as well as the triumphs and pitfalls of trying to capitalise on the feeling as marketeers. And with a little bit of office karaoke thrown in, for good measure. But first, I sat down with Zone's Managing Director of All Things International, Matt Simpson. Probably slightly older than everyone else in the room. <laughs> Client Creative Director, Matt Chokshi. I feel like everything in the 80s was a jingle. Yes, that is two mats in one show. You're just going to have to keep your wits about you. As well as senior strategist, Zakia Bishton. It's all about the 90s, uh, especially in East London. <laughs> we began by reminiscing over the ads and slogans which had stuck in our minds since childhood. I think I was a child during the classic age of the ad slogan. So there were loads. The ones that I remember really well were, um, you guys probably won't even know them, but um, tell them about the honey mummy was sugar puffs. Breakfast cereals are always great for that. Now, to help a honey monster through the morning, I give him breakfast, including sugar puffs and milk. Tell him about the honey mummy. For mash, get smash. So, so they were like little aliens who made their own mashed potato <laughs> yeah. um, from a packet. So for mash, get smash. No. I feel like everything in the 80s was a jingle. Just like that was effective marketing at that era. It's just that you get in someone's head, you have to have uh, some sort of melody behind something what you're doing. It's because it you know, attracts it. I think it's interesting. Cause you see a little bit more of that now, but like I think that was a mechanism in the 80s just because it's TV ads, radio, yeah. those were the media formats. Yeah. So it was their version of cutting through the clutter, making something really catchy. It's true, it's it true. It's to stick in your head. Nice cold, ice cold milk. Yeah. yeah. And now I suppose we don't need that so much because they're hitting us from every single point, angle. But, but, but then they needed us to remember the jingle so that when we went to the shop we would remember the, the jingle and we'd see the product we'd want it and now we just get targeted so many different ways that we don't maybe necessarily need that so much. Before we fall completely down the rabbit hole of our memories, what exactly is nostalgia? Here's psychologist Jacob Jill with the dictionary definition. But before we start, just a quick warning that we've recorded the interview over Skype, so please forgive us for the poor sound quality. The definition of nostalgia is quite um, uh, straightforward, so it's a, it's a sentimental longing or wasteful affection for the past. The etymology of the word shows it hasn't always had quite the cosy, rose-tinted glow we might associate with it today. Originally coined by a medical student in the 17th century, it was derived from the Greek words nostos, meaning to return home, and algos, meaning pain, and was a catch-all term to describe the various symptoms of anxiety he observed in Swiss mercenaries who were fighting abroad. It was considered a malady, 
attributed to causing a wide range of physical as well as psychological symptoms, ranging from stomachache and uncontrolled crying right through to death. And it could be cured with, amongst other things, the application of leeches and immediate return home. In recent years, our understanding of the psychological impact of nostalgia has been completely transformed, as more and more research continues to show just what a positive effect it has on us. The, the research that we've done, so the research that we've done largely just shows that nostalgia is something that has a, a positive um, effect on individuals' psychological health. And I think one of the reasons for that is it helps meet basic psychological needs, needs such as a need for social connectedness, need for meaning in life, need for self-esteem. And uh, although there are individual differences in that and these needs and these needs can change across time, to some extent we're kind of always in tune with things that might help us fill these needs. In short, it makes us happier. But more profoundly than that, we're drawn to nostalgic triggers because they fulfil our most basic psychological needs, such as feeling connected to other people when we reminisce about a shared social experience. It increases our self-esteem and it even helps us find meaning in our lives. Whether that's triggered by an old photo, a piece of music or a brand, the result is the same, and it's incredibly powerful. But why is it so prevalent in pop culture now? Why are millennials, specifically, the most digitally savvy, future-facing generation looking back to their childhoods, or even beyond? Be it with a throwback Thursday hashtag, a feeler sweater or plastic choker, which, by the way, will now cost you the best part of a fiver in Topshop, which is ludicrous. One theory which has been postulated is that it's a generational response to the downturn in the economy. When your future looks uncertain, perhaps even a little bleak, it's tempting to take refuge in the past. Here's Zach's thoughts on this. I think there's always been like elements or like periods of economic uncertainty in probably everyone's lifetime. But I think it's more about the fact that we have the ability now to reference things in so many different ways. And, and then it ties us to people because we've read the same book, we've watched the same film, we understand that we've had the same serial when we were five and we're just like, we can make a gif, we can, make, we can do a hashtag and we've just got so many ways to reference things. So is it simply that there are more platforms available to us? Quicker and easier ways to find and share touchstones from our childhood? A theme tune on YouTube, a gif of Screech from Saved by the Bell. It's never been easier to tap into our collective memory, which makes us feel part of something which makes us feel good. Matt Simpson has a different theory. There's not enough culture to go around now. And by that, I mean, in my day, there were three channels of television, a couple of radio stations and a few magazines. And you only needed a certain number of pop bands and TV shows and celebrities to fill that void. Mm -hmm. Now, because there's so much choice and so much... Uh, so many different ways in which you can consume media there's not enough good things to go around so millennials have to search back to the past to fill the void that's left by that the idea that all these new platforms had created a cultural void raised a much bigger question about creativity in the era in which we live here's Matt Chokshi I think music's actually a really good example um, because you look at artists have to put out albums like every other year, every other year now, whereas before you could wait five years for something great because there was something really happening. Yeah. And they were really crafting it because of digital and people have access to 
to more of everything that you have to con- you know considerably amp up your production and what you you produce and ultimately it means it's less good stuff and there's less cultural moments where it's like do you remember that really great record we look back to really great records because it took about five years in the making there was a story behind it there was a movement happening you know other you know rumblings of indie and things like that it's because that it was organically happening and now it's like because there's a constant 24 7 you know stuff being streamed and, and people doing things like you don't have that build up anymore it struck me as Matt was talking that in discussing it, we ourselves might have been guilty of nostalgically eulogising about our past, or what Jacob describes as a redemptive sequence. So there might be something that was somewhat negative, but uh, the individual usually kind of twists it around to be more of a positive thing. So you know, someone might be like, "Well, university was a really hard time. Uh, it was a lot, of, a lot of work and a lot of stress, but you know, I learned a lot during that portion of my life." For all the cool stuff happening, the 90s were also the decade of such churned-out pop music as this. And this. And it's perhaps pertinent that the last couple of weeks saw the long-awaited release of Bon Iver's latest album after a five-year hiatus. I wonder, are cases like this, of artists taking time to make the work that they want to make. Are they really much rarer now than they were? I'm hopeful that they aren't, but perhaps, as Matt says, it's just much harder to feel their impact amidst all the digital clamour. The internet has democratised creativity, which is incredible. But when we're encouraged as individuals, as well as marketeers, to turn every event into a moment, from jumping on every trending hashtag and International Day of the Something or Other, these so-called cultural moments begin to feel less momentous. Here's Matt Chokshi again. It's interesting about cultural moments too, because I feel like all the ones that we try to have now digitally feel really inauthentic. Like because manufactured. Yeah. It's because like, oh, we need something to talk about right now. Whereas there were natural moments where everybody would talk about it because it wasn't actually a thing that was important. Yeah. It was providing meeting, something helpful, something tragic, whatever it was. It was authentic and it organically happened as opposed to it's a content calendar. We need something for November. What's a moment that we can make? Yeah. I and mean, that's why you keep looking for the past because those moments actually just happened. Easier access to our memories via digital platforms, a cultural void we're unable to fill or having to return to significant cultural moments from our past because the new ones we've created just don't feel authentic enough anymore. These are some of our theories for why we've been dubbed the most nostalgic generation for generations. But we'd love to hear your thoughts, so do tweet us at This Is Zone to carry on the debate. In the meantime, I asked the panel what they thought good nostalgia marketing looked like. Here's Matt Simpson. I think great nostalgic marketing is where you can connect with the past um, to tell you something about the present. And I think a lot of nostalgic marketing misses out the second part of that and is gimmicky and lazy because you know it taps into a certain emotion but it doesn't have any depth beyond that and if I can go back to TV briefly like if you look at some of the great TV shows that have been made in the past 10 or 15 years like Mad Men or Deadwood it's not just that they're set in the past it's that they're telling you a story about America of today through the lens of the past. I think great nostalgic marketing does that. It uses it as a hook, but connects you to something meaningful in the present. 
One fantastic example of this was the Global Gold's What I Really, Really Want video, which was released in July this year. Here's Zach. It was 20th anniversary of the Spice Girls wannabe song to come out and they got these famous uh, musicians from all around the world to be singing about this, this current issue of sexual violence against women. And that seemed like such, that was a brilliant combination of like taking us back to 20 years ago of the Spice Girls and that kind of iconic moment in pop music, but then bring it back to the present day of like there's so many, there's, there's, there's you know, the equality issue globally and doing it in this really clever way. And that video went completely viral and the Spice Girls tweeted about it, Victoria Beckham did, and so did Melissa. So I think that, that was one of, that's one of the, things, the great moments of like taking a nostalgic marketing um, that I've seen this year. It's clever, timely and fun. So if you haven't already seen it, I urge you to take a look at the Global Gold's YouTube channel. Were there any other brands we thought were doing nostalgia marketing well? I think I think the brand that do it best um, are Coca-Cola because they they live and breathe it. Their whole brand is nostalgic, and so it's not just about lazily putting a throwback Thursday image onto Instagram because everyone else is to try and piggyback a trend. Like it goes right through to their product packaging, to the product itself. They re-released Citrus Surge, was it a couple of years ago? Like. They, they it, um, exist through every level of them as an organisation. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I mean, and they have a great jingle back in the day. Okay. <laughs> when it works, it really works. Here's Jacob again to explain why. So a brand or a product or an advertisement makes us feel nostalgic. It's something that is kind of a cue implicitly to us that, okay, this is something that might help me uh, meet a, a basic psychological need. It's not a conscious process that we go through, but we tend to gravitate towards those things. But with great power comes great responsibility. Nostalgia is a powerful emotion, right? It can make you feel... Um, I don't know, meaningful around certain things. And I think brands have a certain responsibility if they're going to jerk that emotional lever to um, make it meaningful for them. Yeah. So it, I think it's easy to, to begin that process by pulling those levers, but actually how, how do you then build on that and make it a proper connection between you and the brand? And that's why I think a lot of brands are not fulfilling the promise of a nostalgic marketing. And older brands might just fare better with it than the new. I suppose obviously it's much easier for an older brand to do this because they have history and they have values and they have three years. They can be nostalgic about different periods in time that what was happening with their brand and their organisation. But then with, with new brands, um, obviously it's, it's, it's very difficult because you have to partner up with the right nostalgic moment for your audience and it's going to resonate with them and it's relevant and it's got meaning to who you are right now. So that's where I think it's it's a bit more tricky. Um, but then obviously, yeah, when it's done well, it, you know, it can be brilliant because it means that you can speak to people directly to a certain group of people about a very point in history and about why this is now relevant for them. Pokemon Go, the Nintendo Mini NES released, even our banks are trying to speak to us through our childhood cartoons. It's everywhere. But do the panel think the bubble is about to burst? Are we going to experience nostalgia fatigue? 
Well, no, I mean, like the best, the biggest nostalgic thing that people have been talking about the last couple of months is Stranger Things, mm-hmm. and that's the '80s. And it's basically a ripoff of every major, you know, film of the 1980s, and you know. It's, the 80s have been around for a while. People have been referencing that for a while, too. So I don't think it's going to go away. I think it's just going to be, you know, part of what people are referencing from here on out. Personally, I really hope Matt's wrong. I'm definitely at an age now where mum jeans and belly tops make me look like a mum who's accidentally put her favourite camel roll neck through a hot wash. I asked why the panel thought the 90s specifically is having such a moment and how they thought we'll look back on the noughties and teens. By the way, this section makes us sound really really old it was a really distinctive decade in terms of culture and fashion and music i i wonder if in 10 or 20 years time people will will look back to the noughties in the same way because i can't remember one single defining feature of that decade um and well help me out if there was one but like was the most famous band coldplay that fills me with (laughs) gloom, horror and despair uh, that no, anyone just would... In, just in... Just in... Um, yeah. no, just in Bieber. <laughs> just in Bieber. Yeah. Is that Maybe. best? I yeah. don't know. It's also, it's, are people going to start referencing technology and digital stuff? And is that going to be cool? Like, is AOL going to be popular again? <laughs> yeah, I hope. Or maybe in like 10 years, they'll, they'll have parties celebrating 80s parties that happened in the, the 2010s. Yeah. It'll go totally meta. Eating deconstructed volivants while listening to a share megamix. Maybe it wouldn't be so bad. For the digital generation, the way they look back will undoubtedly be very different. There will be no dodgy VHS tapes of school plays, no dogged photographs or family albums stored in the loft. With the lack of digital in their 80s and 90s, it it still holds some sort of surprise and interest when you look back at it, even if you look back at your own photos from then in photo albums. Whereas now, because everything's just there, nothing will be a surprise when you look back into the past anymore because it will have always been constantly referenced. Like, you know, on your Time Hop app, you get reference from the last four years every day. So nothing seems a surprise. So perhaps we won't need to celebrate the past. Looking back will be less of a tangible physical experience. Our children's past will be recorded much more comprehensively, publicly, and will be much easier to call upon in an instant than our own. I asked Matt Simpson if he thought, as a result of this, that the next generation would remain or drift away from our apparent preoccupation with the past. I think move away, because it's just all there for them already. There's not, there'll be no need for a BuzzFeed, hey, look what we're all wearing 10 years ago article, because it's just there for everyone, they see it. yeah. Until then, what did we think the future of nostalgia marketing might look like? It strikes me then that nostalgia is very personal. There are things that we can collectively uh, all look back on together of sort of made trends. Actually, true nostalgia is about the things that are personal to you and your own experiences. And if brands can, through the advance in technological means by which to personalise, can try and tap into that, that would be very powerful. It's true. I mean, it reminds me, there was, an, there was a, a video made by Arcade Fire in a lot of years ago. They used Google Map technology. So you, so you put in your hometown of birth and then the video itself interlinked scenes pulled from Google Maps of that town. That's very true. It's That's interesting to think about if you could personalise nostalgia. Yeah, yeah. Your brain. You'd have to be extremely careful because that could backfire terribly if you're 
if it feels like you're encroaching too much, but finding a way for you to personalise it through a brand might be quite interesting. Personalisation, a buzzword we will undoubtedly be returning to time and again in future podcasts. But there's one aspect of this conversation which we've been dancing around, and I think it's finally time to address it. The thing is... Yeah. I always think as a rule, if a brand has turned to nostalgia's marketing, it's because their creative agency has run out of ideas and they can't think of anything new. To be really harsh. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Endless prequels and reboots in the cinema. The BBC bringing back one-off episodes of Goodnight Sweetheart and Porridge. There's just so much of it. And yes, it's comforting in a Sunday evening, sugary tea sort of way. And granted, there are the odd exceptions which manage to both remind us of our past while telling us something about our present. But they do tend to be the exception and not the rule. But I think if we're honest as marketeers, as creatives of any kind, we shouldn't settle for that. We should all try just a little bit harder, be just a little bit braver and come up with some new ideas. We hope you enjoyed listening to the Digital Distractions podcast, produced and hosted by me, Beth Lewis at Zone. If you did, why not treat yourself and subscribe to the weekly Digital Distractions newsletter via our website, zonedigital.com. (laughs) 